And now we take great pleasure in presenting to you the star of our program, Miss Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. It is my happy privilege to introduce a new song, God Bless America. God bless America. God bless America. Dare we sing the song today while harboring any expectations that God, the holy God of the Bible, would bestow upon us his truest blessing. Today, the average American has no real sense of history or national pride. The younger generation has no respect for the achievements of our forefathers. In our elected leaders' minds, God has no right to interfere in, in the affairs of the state. They evidenced this in 1962 and 1963 by ruling God out of the public square. God bless America. These arrogant, highly educated, intelligent people have willfully rejected God and stand filled with a conceit that God will not tolerate. Sorry, boys. God's blessing ain't coming. His hand has been removed and his eyes have turned away. But what has happened to biblical Christianity in the United States of America? This is my question, and this will be a topic that we will consider in this podcast, Controlling the Narrative, Faith of Our Fathers. My name is Frank Goss, and I want to thank you for following along with us in our Controlling the Narrative podcast. We hope the information we provide is beneficial to you, and again, thank you very much for listening. Ronald Reagan made a statement several years ago that was true and it was accurate and when it hit the public it rang in the ears of many of the people who had gone through four years of Jimmy Carter's recession. He said, government is not the solution to our problem. It is the problem. And when we begin to consider the rise of American greatness, we must understand that with the expansion of the United States came a needed restraint due to the deepening of corruption and division between the states. Divergent political views arose and a herd mentality was developed in several states. Religion was not something that was thriving during the revolutionary year. There was a great deal of confusion and religious freedom was more of a theory than practice. There was no national church nor great swelling desire to worship God. The idea of the federal government was new, and it wasn't well accepted by all. Patrick Henry, a valiant patriot, did not support the idea of federalism at all. Nor did James Monroe or Thomas Jefferson. Both were future presidents. Several religious majorities were in power, and localized regional influences were found among the minorities. Now, being led by God, these groups discriminated against individuals and groups with whom they disagreed. 
It's amazing how men tend to be men, no matter where you find them or what period of history you want to concentrate on. The discrimination showed up in various and apparent ways. Land ownership was restricted. You would not be allowed to vote if you held different religious views in certain states. There was forced relocation, extra taxes, fines, beatings, and in some cases, men were imprisoned and put to death. There were a host of religious beliefs that varied from area to area. So Christianity in the early days was, eh, it was a very contentious issue. But there were those who truly loved God and truly sought to follow God. Anglicans, Congregationalists, Jews, Quakers, Baptists, Enlightenment, Agnostics, Atheists filled the American population. Religious unity was much harder to find at that time than it is today, really. And it was also much more virulent and violent. But it can't be denied that the Constitution allowed for religious freedom. And we're going to examine that in our next study. A lot of this depends on your view of the nature of man. Now this argument has been around for centuries, but we'll consider both John Locke and Thomas Hobbes' views as both contributed to the ideas expressed in the Constitution of the United States. While these two men agreed in many instances, they significantly differed on some of the critical issues. I'm going to offer my opinion here, which is of little importance, really, but these men were both intellectuals with extraordinarily strong abilities, and personally, I'm not worthy of carrying their water, honestly, but I can read what they wrote, and I can compare what I have read, and I can arrive at conclusions according to my limited knowledge, right or wrong. Locke believed that men were essentially good, and concerned with the overall welfare of others. He favored a universal democratic approach to government, because he believed that humans were collectively good and, by default, they want to see the best for others. John Locke's basis for this opinion was that God created man in the image of God, and there is none good but God alone. Now, if we are his workmanship, we have that divine spark of divinity within all of us. Thus, at the core of our being, if we dig deep enough, we will discover and uncover and innate goodness in all men. The government's job is to bring this goodness to the surface in society. This established the work of government and John Locke's determination. John Locke, it must be noted, was an Enlightenment thinker. A lot of people note that he was a theologian and that he believed in God, but he was more of a theist, um, a rational theist in his thinking. Blackstone and others were definitely men who were committed to the grace of God, but Locke was not. Hobbes, an English professor, believed that man by nature was essentially cruel, selfish, and evil. The only way to control that evil was through power or force of law, thus establishing his view of the purpose of government. He believed that humans do not possess a moral compass, and they need preconceived rules to instruct them on what is good and what is evil. To many, this is a scary view with overtones of totalitarianism, and it lends itself to the possibility of despotic rule. We must note that Hobbes held to the monarchy, to the monarchy as the best form of government. Long live the king, and God bless the queen. Now, if we consider the entire panoply of history in light of Locke's position, which was classic liberalism, we would have to point to specific facts that cannot be denied. 
Suppose the collective of men brings together a package of sound minds to formulate a sublime idea of the expression of goodness. Why does history show that governmental decisions in a communal effort result in every crisis created resulting in war, death, and destruction? In the 20th century alone, over 180 million people were slaughtered, not by natural disaster, but by the free exercise of governmental power and authority. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all of the centuries before combined. This generally has come through governmental controls. In China, North Korea, Russia, Albania, the government represses the aspirations and the desires of the people, and most definitely the religious expressions. The collective goodness of these men combine to form these conclusions. Man generally wants to be left alone to pursue his path. Let me live my life with my family, own my property that I've earned, my land, my horses, my dog. Let me raise my children and tend my garden. I'll build my house, I'll feed my animals, and then I'll die. Just stay out of my affairs. That's not a bad request or desire, is it? And it seems to be fair enough. The error with this line of thought is that we need to consider the selfish nature of such thinking. We're not islands set apart unto ourselves. We have neighbors that surround us, and there are others in need, and we ourselves have need. There are other people on earth that we cannot and should not ignore. Should we be required by law to show compassion? This is where Hobbes was right, as was Edmund Burke. They understood Paul, the Apostle Paul, and though I am sure they read Plato, they recognized that the imagination of man's heart is evil continually. They agreed with God. The government establishes laws to protect us from ourselves and others. If the law says we cannot steal, you cannot take what not, does not belong to you from others. You can't. What would have been the problem if this law had been established? People were stealing from one another, right? So the problem was people were not helping other people. They were taking it from other people. Establishing a law prohibiting theft is one way to show compassion. So, laws against public intoxication, intoxication, they help you and me, particularly if a drunkard insists on driving down the road. In most cases, laws are intended to force compassion in a vicarious manner. Law is given to contain sin, show people they are sinful, and direct men in their behavior. Locke was wrong in his final summation. Man is not compassionate by nature. There is not a spark of divinity within him. It has been surrendered in Adam. He is not basically good. No, typically man is self-centered and egotistical. Love and compassion are, val are voluntary action to the heart. And they're spiritual issues. God is love. He commands us to be like him in loving one another. The problem is that we don't love anyone or anyone else more than we love ourselves. This is not a legal issue. It is a moral and spiritual issue. But therein lies the problem. This is where mistakes are made. Some enter into civil service due to what they see within society. And they aim to see how laws can be enacted to restrain and promote certain activities. Limited government, which the Founding Fathers envisioned, was the goal, not the collective approach to imposing morality on a nation. Let me ask you this, and you answer honestly, okay? 
What is the purpose of government in the United States of America? Why was the Constitution written? You answer in your own mind. Thomas Jefferson said, A wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. Now, remember that Jefferson was not a Christian. He was a rational theist. He was an enlightened thinker. The Word of God may have impressed Jefferson, and the principles therein may have excited his mind. But Christianity was not the dynamo behind his reasoning. Rationale and what made sense. This is what motivated Thomas Jefferson. The Bible is clear and concise. It gives us understanding in the role of government, and Jefferson, though not a Christian, did commit much of his time to reading and studying of the Scriptures. In Romans 13, 3-6, we're told that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but lousy behavior. If you don't want to be afraid of the one in authority, then do what's good, and you'll receive approval. The government is God's servant, working for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. If you break the rules, you should be watching over your shoulder. The government has the right to carry out the death sentence, you know. They can imprison you if you break the laws continually. God's servant, the government, is an avenger, and it will execute God's wrath on anyone who does what is wrong. Therefore, you must obey, not only because you're afraid of God's anger, but also because of conscience. That is, that is also why you pay your taxes. The people in government are God's servants while they do the work that God has given them to do. Simply put, the government's role gives primacy to the rule of law or the punishing of evil, and praise to those who do right. The government is the force behind the law. If the law has no force, it becomes nothing more than a bunch of good suggestions. The government's first purpose is to keep you and me safe, protecting our freedom and our liberty. The Constitution of the United States was written to define the limits of governmental control. It was not an oppression of the individual's right, but a constraint on the established rights and freedoms and allowances of the government. The Constitution was written to control not the people, but the government. Again, Thomas Hobbes and Edmund Burke recognize that men tend towards evil, and power corrupts the government, and it will get all it can by way of power. If left unrestrained, the government will quickly embrace tyranny and will opt for totalitarian rule. Historically, this has been and will continue to be the case, and today we see that in action as well. Living in isolation is a quiet way of expressing the selfish nature of, nature of man. If I can run off and live on an island, I would do it. What is mine is mine, and that's really all that matters in my world. My kingdom, my, rule, my rules. You live under my roof, you obey my rules. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Yes, I do. He died owning nothing but the clothes on his back. Now here's what Jesus says. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And yes, I believe that. The second commandment is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself.
You were called to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the widow's case. And if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he thirsts, you give him something to drink. Now suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but you don't do anything about their physical needs, what good is that? We can't do this if we're shut up unto ourselves, can we? This reveals where we stand if we take that attitude. And then you ask, well, who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is the one in need. And this is a call to action when you see the need. This is evident all through scripture and all throughout history. Adam took a bite of the fruit that hung from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He sinned. He sinned against God directly, knowing, having been told by God personally, what he should do. When he did it, he heard God was coming and he took off running. All he wanted at that point was, seclu was seclusion and isolation. Just leave me alone. Let me live. Leave me alone. God, this woman you gave me has gotten me in so much trouble. Now notice how sin led Adam to this desire. It wasn't the grace of God that directed him in this way. It was Adam's own mind. The law of God is good. And it contains a negative side, yes, but it also contains a positive side. It shows God's character, his love for man, wrath, and anger towards sin. God hates sin. Not because you sin and he hates you. He hates sin because it destroys the fellowship that he longs to have with you and me. So the law is given to protect man and to perfect man and to bring him into a fellowship with himself, not to crush him. The law of God is perfect and revives a man's soul. It makes a man wise concerning what's right in the eyes of God and towards other men. The law of God points us to the love of our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love, then, is the fulfillment of the law. And if you read your Bible, and I would encourage you to do so daily, you'll clearly see that when governmental laws conflict with God's direct commands, we must first obey God rather than man. To do anything less means that we fear men more than we fear God. Let's pray for one another that we might have the courage and the faith to stand in these challenging times, and we are in very challenging times. In the United States today, we must obey God rather than man, and we must stand against and not encourage or placate the selfish desires of mankind. We must not participate or agree with things like abortion, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, transsexuality, divorce, remarriage, for reasons other than fornication, and many, many other reasons. You are to oppose things openly that contradict God. And if you do, you will definitely suffer. Why? Because men have coalesced in their desires to ignore God and to promote their standards. And if you stand in opposition, I assure you, you will suffer. But God will be with you if you honor and obey him from the heart. God honors those who honor him. Look around you and take stock in your community, in your state, in your nation. And then ask the question, like I'm asking, what has happened to Christianity in America? What has happened? You're listening to Vintage Broadcasting, our new podcast, Controlling the Narrative, Faith of Our Fathers. 
In this podcast, we're asking the question, why is Christianity fading in America? As always, we hope this information has been beneficial to you and helps you understand the history that has brought us to where we find ourselves today. As always, thank you very much for listening.